Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm one of your co-hosts for the AOMPT podcast. Before we get started today, I'd like to remind you of a couple of things. First, in less than a week, that's November 4th through the 8th, our Academy's virtual conference will begin. As per usual, we have a spectacular lineup of presenters, and if you're not already registered, then you should be. To find out more information about this year's virtual conference, check out our website and click on the Upcoming Events link, which you'll find in the conference drop-down menu on the homepage. If you're not sure how to find our homepage, then head to the show notes and you'll find a link there. For our global audience, this will be a great opportunity for you to experience our conference material without having to travel around the world, which isn't usually an option. Second, if you haven't already, please consider finding our podcast on your preferred platform and giving us a review. It really does help other people find our work, and we appreciate each and every review that we get. Those points having been made, let's get to the primary point of today's episode, and that is an interview with Dr. Brianna Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds is a physical therapist with orthopedic residency and fellowship training. She has also completed a PhD in physical therapy and has been teaching at the doctoral level since 2014. In addition to her role as an associate professor at South College, she also works in clinical practice at Rock Valley Physical Therapy in Peoria, Illinois. Perhaps most important to the podcast, she is a fellow of our academy. We invited Dr. Reynolds to the podcast because she was recently the primary author of a research study published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. That article was titled, Effectiveness of Cervical Spine High-Velocity Low-Amplitude Thrust Added to Behavioral Education, Soft Tissue Mobilization, and exercise in individuals with temporomandibular disorder with myalgia, a randomized clinical trial. I don't know about you, but I'm super excited about this conversation, and I can't wait to hear what Dr. Reynolds has to teach us. So, without any further delay, let's get to the interview. Dr. Reynolds, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Stephen. Thank you. Well, we are stoked to have you here on the podcast, and this is a particularly interesting time as our Academy Conference is coming up soon. So, you know, we're getting in that whole vibe to, well, I would say get together in person, which is normally what we do, but this time we're going virtual. And I guess that's probably a fitting theme with the podcast because the podcast, of course, is virtual as well. Yes, it's exciting. I love conference time, especially AOMT. I, I know most of the listeners, too. This is my favorite conference. Can't wait for it. Well, it is your favorite with good reason. It is a, it is a spectacular conference, but that's a topic for next week. Let's get uh, back to today. And I'm excited about this paper. I was excited when I read it. And I understand that the work from this manuscript stemmed out of your PhD that you earned can you tell us why it is that you chose this particular topic when studying for your PhD and, you know, maybe just the whole genesis of the idea and the, and the project in general? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. So, you know, in going through the PhD process, finding a topic for your dissertation is a bit dynamic, um, sometimes feels a little overwhelming. 
So I had lots of things to think about in, in choosing the topic. And I would say, first and foremost, I had a clinical interest. You know, I had been working as a PT and outpatient for a good 12 years before I even stepped into academics. And I saw a lot of patients with neck pain and headache primarily. And those patients would mention jaw pain frequently. And in mentioning their jaw pain, they'd also mention some of their struggles with managing the pain, some of their difficulties with the interventions they had tried and spent lots of money on that, that may or may not have been helpful. I'd hear complaints about insurance companies not covering anything related to this type of pain. And so I think my patients taught me to have an interest in this. Uh, I, I could hear that they weren't getting the help that they needed. So really just the population of TMD, that's where it started, uh, was, was my clinical practice and looking at that. So, you know, in, in clinical practice, I went on and um, did some continuing education with St. Augustine, some courses with uh, Mike Karaginas from Wisconsin. I just started learning more about it. And in learning more about it, you continue to find out that, that there's a reason your patients with neck pain and headache have these complaints. And, and there are some relationships and associations between the two regions. So I would say, again, you know, it was my, it was my clinical work. That's, that's where it started um, and, and realizing that these patients didn't always have the help that they needed. So I think that was the primary reason for heading in that direction. I think that's a spectacular reason to land on any particular topic. Of course, we are both a clinical profession and an academic profession, so I really love it when those two halves get to, you know, mesh together in a way that hopefully yields better knowledge, better clinical practice, et cetera. And, you know, we, we should say I'm a bit biased on this topic because you, you basically described my career as well. I would consider myself a clinical expert in this anatomical region. And because of my past clinical practice, I also chose this as my dissertation topic. So uh, I feel like here we are two people ready to geek out on temporomandibular disorders. And in terms of diving into that topic, the next question I have for you, you've already alluded to, and that is the statistical link between the cervical spine and the temporomandibular joint. Can you talk to us about that association and why these two let's call them anatomically ad adjacent regions, probably can or should be considered when looking at either area. In other words, what's that relationship? What does the research tell us about it? And why is it important clinically? Yeah, great question. And uh, I will agree that I was excited to have you host this podcast with me, uh, Stephen, based on your background in the topic too. So, so this is exciting for me too. But the uh, statistical link with cervical spine and TMJ has multiple facets. So the proposed links are really, really threefold. And the first is an anatomical link. And to answer the question, what does research tell us? Well, we don't need a ton of research to, to recognize that there's an anatomical link between the cervical spine and the temporomandibular joint. So if we look at the superior surface of the joint, it's the temporal fossa. It's connected to the head. And, and where the head and neck move means there's going to be some impact uh, potentially at that joint. So just based on the fact that the superior surface of the joint comes from the head and, and where the head and neck move together, that's, that's one link. The next is biomechanical. And that one, um, that biomechanical link does have some additional evidence to help us understand this process. You know, if we think about what happens when we move our head and neck to our mouth opening, well, if we all even do it right now, open your mouth as wide as you can, you'll notice that you'll get a little bit of cervical extension with that maximal mouth opening. So there's some adjacent movement um, of the head and neck whenever we do move our jaw. 
when there's limitation in the cervical spine motion, we've seen in research some individuals that have limited mouth openings. You can see a correlation between the two. Muscle activation is correlated. So when, when we're talking, when we're chewing, you can see coactivation of, of cervical musculature as well as masticatory musculature. We see that happen together. Um, we've got some evidence that tells us that upper cervical spine range of motion is, is limited in the TMD folks. So in that crowd, we can see that too. So, so we can see some biomechanical links, some changes with forward head posture, various things in the literature that tell us that there's got to be some sort of relationship there. And then I'd say the third link, maybe the one I'd argue is, is the most important here and, and probably the most relevant to my choice to use cervical manipulation for this crowd, is the neurophysiological relationship. That's recognizing that the TMJ, the muscles of mastication, are innervated by the trigeminal nerve, so cranial nerve five. And then the, the cranial nerve five and the upper cervical nerve roots share some space in the cervico-trigeminal or trigeminocervical nucleus. It's, it's said both ways. But that's essentially the region from the midbrain extending down into the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So within this nucleus, there's a convergence of those nerve regions, so the trigeminal nerve and the upper cervical nerve roots. And when we say upper cervical, we mean really C1 to C3. Um, some evidence shows it down to C4 even. But what does that mean? I guess, so the next question is, what does that neurophysiological relationship actually mean? Well, messages from either of those regions can be interpreted in the brain differently. So a message coming from our jaw can be interpreted in the brain as potentially coming from the head and neck region and vice versa. So that makes our diagnostic process a little complicated. But there's also some clinical value there from a treatment perspective. Uh, and we have evidence to support this too, that treatment in one of those regions can potentially impact the other region. So it kind of goes both ways in that maybe messages can come from one to the other in terms of where, where the pain is potentially coming from, but the treatment effect can also cross over there. So I'd say that's it. That's the three regions are, or reasons are anatomical, biomechanical relationship, and then finally that neurophysiological relationship. I love it. I think that was a very thorough and accurate description of the link between these two regions, and I, I could not have said that better myself. These are all general themes that I convey to my patients, for example, when they have questions for me about the relationship between the two. Of course, sometimes a patient could get a little you know, worried or freaked out or confused if you want to work on a different location than the one they came in for, but especially because these regions are so closely related and pretty much all of your, your jaw patients are going to have some form of headache. They get it pretty quickly. But when you can organize and package an explanation so succinctly like you just did, I think it helps the patient to understand that you know what you're talking about. And this all makes sense from a scientific perspective. So again, I absolutely love it. But moving on from that point, if we take this out to a broader perspective, within our profession of physical therapy, can you talk to us for a little bit about the general evidence that we have when it comes to the evaluation and management of jaw disorders? You know, what does the evidence say in what, by virtue of that, do you think a clinician needs to know about our profession as it relates to this anatomical region? That is a great question. I actually think we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about just this question. But I think most of us would recognize that the quality or at least actually the quantity of evidence as compared to other MSK regions is, is vastly different. So we just don't have as much 
in terms of quantity. And, and the quality of evidence is building and growing, but it's not like we have these systematic reviews of all high-quality randomized controlled trials to analyze. We just don't. So I would say there's less evidence for us to work with in the physical therapy realm. So I want to be a little careful in that and saying that there is a lot of dental literature out there. So there is a lot of good quality evidence coming from dental professionals, but of course their direction and focus is a little different than ours. Um, when I look at the PT literature, there is some great work by, by yourself and Ann Harrison that just give us some general guidelines of examination and treatment options. So if I were talking to a clinician, I'd say start there. Start with that content and look at maybe how we can think about classifying these patients, how we can examine them, and, and some ideas for treatment, if nothing else. You know, that kind of directs me to this discussion about the diagnostic classification system. And compared to other MSK regions, we don't really have the exact same picture that we have for other regions. Dentists use the diagnostic classification system called the DCTMD, and PTs recognize that that exists but it doesn't quite give us that PT diagnosis that we're seeking. So while we certainly understand that maybe an MRI can show us some things like arthritic change and, and the arthr arthralgia that may be present on that classification system, it may or may not be the source of dysfunction. I think that mirrors some of our discussions in other regions like neck pain, back pain, knee pain, wherever else we're going with this. So our goal of classification is a little bit different, and I would say we don't have that clear and effective classification system in physical therapy to guide our treatment choices. Now, looking at some of the randomized controlled trials that are out there, we do have some, some high-quality RCTs. We do have some good case series and single group designs. So the evidence is building. It's getting there. We're just not quite to that highest tier of evidence yet. I think that's a phenomenal summary of the available evidence in that, of course, is consistent with my understanding of the literature as well. And one thing in particular with respect to what you just said that I think can be very troubling is how do we as musculoskeletal professionals arrive at that diagnosis of TMD, which in itself, of course, is a really big, broad, overarching topic. It's about as specific as saying, quote unquote, low back pain. Speaking to that point, in your manuscript, you referred to a screening tool that you used for TMD. Can you talk about what that tool consists of and why you chose to use it? Yeah, I can. So again, the, the DCTMD classification system was utilized a bit in this study too. So, so I included individuals with myalgia. And that's one of the broad categories um, in that classification system that includes myalgia, arthralgia, disc displacement with and without reduction and subluxation. So that's more of that diagnostic criteria. And there's some support for utilization of that classification system, but it isn't necessarily guiding our treatment plans. So one of the things I wanted to do was to potentially use a screening tool that could just tell me, yes or no, do we have this big picture of TMD? So like you said, it, it is so broad but is this something the patient's coming in for? I really wanted a population that had that as their primary complaint. So other studies that I looked at did some different treatment interventions, but they used a population that maybe had neck pain or some other associated pain, not necessarily primary TMD. So I wanted to find those folks that that was their primary complaint. The screening form that I used um, is pretty simple and uh, reported in the literature. So the, it was first proposed by Gonzalez and Schiffman 
uh, in their development. And then there's a little bit of further study by Schiffman and Orbach that kind of talks about the utilization. So what does that simple screen look like? Three simple questions. In the last month or in the last 30 days, on average, how long did pain in your jaw or temple area last? So in the last month, how long did this pain in your jaw or temple last? And the choices are no pain, brief to more than a week, but it stops, or continuous. So you have three levels of pain, none, continuous, or somewhere in the middle. Then the next question is, uh, in the last 30 days, have you had pain or stiffness in your jaw upon wakening? And your choices are yes or no. First thing in the morning, upon wakening in the last month, have you had pain or stiffness? And then the final question, did chewing hard or tough food change that pain in your jaw or temple area? And again, yes or no. So with those three questions, you only need a yes to two of them in order to suggest a positive screen, meaning that it is likely that the individual has some form of TMD and a potential need for treatment uh, is kind of the summary based on that screening tool. I love it. And I love the simplicity of the screening tool. And it makes me think back to, oh, we're probably going back about four or five years now when I was asked to present at a dental conference. And the primary thing that they were looking for was, how do I, as an MSK expert, think that they should screen for TMD? And another way to word that is, how do I think they should determine who they're going to send to me for conservative musculoskeletal services? And, you know, I, I tend to work like a lot of physios kind of independently, I suppose. I don't, for example, share an office with dental professionals. And I was taking my complicated or what I think is complicated approach to TMD and just trying to trim it down further and further and further. And what's the smallest list of things that I can come up with that you can ask or test or whatever, and then determine if somebody needs clinical services for TMD. And <laughs> um, I'm a little embarrassed to say that my, my final product, the first time that I tried to present that information was a little bit overly complicated for the dental folks who, as you correctly pointed out earlier, they have a different emphasis on their services than we do. As a result, my presentation pretty much flopped, which, you know, lesson learned on that one. But then you see this type of, you know, just three question, simple approach. And, you know, I could even maybe propose something more simple, which is like, do you have symptoms above the clavicles? If so, then somebody like yourself or myself probably needs to take a look at that and see whether or not physio can help. And, you know, I just, I like it. I like the simplicity of it because, you know, it is what you said. It's a screening tool. We apply this, we try to figure out whether or not somebody needs a more thorough eval. And it's really that more thorough evaluation that's going to get us where we're going as expert clinicians in this type of uh, care for our patients. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. The more we converse with dental professionals, we recognize what it is that they're really asking us and recognize that we're at some point speaking a different language. So we've got to find that common ground where we can realize when the other party can help us and help our patients too. Precisely. And, you know, we need that collaborative approach because we can't all do this alone. Speaking just a, a little bit to that point, and I apologize because this is a, a little bit of an overly detailed question, but consistently in dental-based documents, take, for example, the RDC-TMD and the DC-TMD, they'll use a range of motion cutoff of 40 millimeters. In other words, if the patient can open up their mouth at least 40 millimeters in between their incisors, then they're not considered to be restricted. 
But I see in your manuscript, you used a cutoff of 50 millimeters. And I was just curious to know why you chose that quantity of mouth opening and, and why perhaps it was a little bit different than what you see sometimes in the dental literature. That is an excellent question and an informed question, Stephen, because of what you just said. When you look at the different literature, it's all over the place, but I think we can probably argue that for any MSK region, right? What's normal knee range of motion? Well, it depends on so many different things. And I think physical therapist perspective is always what's functional. Um, So what do we consider normal? What do we consider functional? And those numbers aren't always the same. So this decision, there's a lot of thought that went into this decision. And even at a um, interdisciplinary conference I was at, um, when I was in the planning stages here, I was talking to some dentists and I was talking to some physical therapists who had published in this area, trying to figure out what do we use? How do, how do we measure it really? Cause there's a little bit of argument there too, but let's say we agree from kind of, uh, incisor tip, central incisor to incisor that we measure that region, then what do we consider normal? So, so I think some of it was through discussion and part of it was also because, um, you know, in designing a study, you have to have a sample size estimation. So an a priori sample size estimation to decide how many subjects am I going to need for this study? What measurement am I going to use to tell me a difference between groups? And in the TMD population, there is not a lot of evidence in terms of other outcomes that I could use that have been consistently measured by other researchers. So mouth opening is the one that has the most evidence. And and so that's the one I used and looked at the literature that existed out there. And I needed to come up with something that I could say, will I see some change in this? Whatever my cutoff might be, will it change whenever I'm, I'm performing an intervention? So yeah, I'm on the high end here. If we say normal range of motion for opening is somewhere between 35 and 40 for function, I shouldn't say normal. For function, 35 to 40 millimeters is usually what's listed, but normals can range all the way up to 55 or even greater. So I needed a little room for potential change, but I also knew clinically that there were plenty of individuals who opened well over 40 millimeters of motion and still had functional impairments. Uh, So I didn't want to cut my population there. I didn't want to have to exclude those individuals that I knew could potentially benefit from the intervention. I can certainly appreciate the nuance of your answer, and it's a very difficult question to answer. It's very easy to ask, I might add, but there's just so much evidence and controversy and anatomical variation that goes into that question. So uh, I really, again, I appreciate how you you know, neatly package that for our audience. And if I could go on, of course, to an, another really easy question to answer, I'd like to hear more about how you decided to implement management strategies for these patients during the randomized clinical trial. And of course, that's a, it's a little bit uh, tongue in cheek there because management in itself is obviously very complicated. But you know, if you could nicely package that in a, let's just say a digestible way for our audience, that would be great. Yes. So anytime you're diving into a treatment-based approach and specifically a randomized controlled trial, the difficult thing is to investigate the cervical thrust, which is what I wanted to investigate, I really needed the rest of the treatment to be the same so that the only difference between groups would be that cervical manipulation. But I didn't want either group to receive no treatment because we're performing this in a clinical environment. We wanted individuals to still have a potential to benefit from the treatment that we provided. 
So what do we have evidence on? You know, you and I talked about the, some of the difficulty with the evidence in this population, but we do have support for a few things. And one of them is education. So behavioral education is something that is supported in the evidence. And I wanted both groups to get that. Uh, another one, there is some support for manual therapy interventions. And I chose in this case to just use soft tissue mobilization to the cervical spine, not the orofacial region, just the neck, because we were, again, um, going to perform potentially a cervical manipulation on, on part of the population. And then there's evidence for exercise. So I knew we needed to provide these folks with a home exercise program. Um, so that's kind of the gist of it, is that, that we know we have evidence for some education, soft tissue work, and exercise. Let's make sure both groups get that so that they have something that could potentially help them. And then we'll add this cervical manipulation and see if that makes a difference between groups. That's a perfect segue towards, of course, the next logical question. And that is you designed the study, you implemented these different treatment strategies. And you know, after that, what was the result? What did you learn from this investigation that our listeners can take home in terms of how they might decide, for example, to approach their patients in their own clinics? So we were comparing groups here. So it was, it was a mixed model, um, ANOVA. So you're always looking for statistically significant interactions. Was there a difference between group and time here? And of all the outcomes we measured, there were two that had statistically significant interaction effects. So those are the ones based on the research and the results that maybe we should speak to. And the first is the jaw functional limitation scale. And then the TSK TMD version, so the fear scale that is uh, specific to the TMD crowd, those were the two that had differences. So if we say that those are measuring the constructs of function and fear, then those are the things that potentially were different between groups. Um, now, one of the more interesting things, in my opinion, is also the difference between the individual's perception of change. So a lot of us utilize the global rating of change. And we use that in this study too. So the difference between groups in terms of the patient's perception of success uh, was stronger in the group that received the cervical manipulation. So we had more individuals reporting themselves to be improved, which we called a GROC of five or greater in the group that was receiving the cervical manipulation. Another interesting piece that I want to toss in here is the side effects. Anytime we talk about cervical manipulation, you know, we could go down a long road of discussion about safety of cervical manipulation. And there were no, no major side effects here, but it was interesting to note that the sham group actually reported more side effects and a little higher severity in terms of how they rated it and how long it lasted. Um, and that was in the group where we, we didn't even do any cervical manipulation. So I think that's a pretty interesting finding too. I agree. That's very interesting. And like you said, we know that the likelihood of adverse events, and that's not just with cervical manipulation, that's any form of physical therapy, is very, very low. And, you know, I think it's interesting to see that theme just carried through consistently in a lot of different studies. In addition, I'd like to point out that in the beginning of this conversation, of course, we talked about that link between the cervical spine and the temporomandibular joint. So, of course, it makes sense to me, and hopefully it makes sense to our listeners as well, that when you add this cervical spine component to the treatment, you're going to get a favorable impact on clinical outcomes. And one of the reasons I think that this information is so important, it's not just because people like you and people like me, which is to say individuals trained in treating both the neck and the jaw need to make sure we're treating both the neck and the jaw, but 
the world is more complicated than that. Not everybody feels comfortable with both of these anatomical regions, and that's okay. And sometimes maybe they're not even legally allowed to treat both. I think that part of what this tells us is we can start to mix and match clinical services. You know, maybe, for example, a chiropractor is treating the neck, but they don't have jaw skills. So they need to figure out who else they can collaborate with to make sure the patient gets a more global approach to this overall problem. And even when I've taught courses in the past, sometimes I have, as my students, speech language pathologists who are trying to learn how to do better evaluation and treatment of the jaw, but within the limitation of their legal practice acts, et cetera, they might not be able to treat the spine. And again, that's, that's not necessarily the end of the world. You could even, of course, say the same thing about the dentists. Dentists aren't trained in how to evaluate and treat the neck, but the jaw is much more in their realm. And as you've so nicely pointed out, we have to couple all of that together in some way, shape, or form to make sure our patients are getting what they need. And it just so happens that people like myself can, can treat both of those anatomical regions, but that doesn't mean everyone can. And I think it's research like the research that you've created that helps us put enough let's say, clinical focus on this. And that's really what our patients need. Our patients need to get better. So they need all of us kind of thinking along the same lines and working towards the same common goal. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we talk about sometimes uh, physical therapist confidence with, with treating this region too. So even within our own field, having therapists who want to and feel comfortable treating this area. And we have some evidence that performing interventions to the neck only in the TMD population has a positive impact. So even when you actually do nothing to the jaw or orofacial region, that you can have a positive impact by treating the neck. So I think we're missing the boat if we don't acknowledge that this is part of the treatment plan. So whatever that ends up looking like in terms of collaboration between dentistry, physical therapy, chiropractors, um, maybe speech therapists, anybody who's managing these folks, Hopefully we can all be on the same page that, that maybe we need some of the cervical intervention too. Adding to that point, clearly we've both mentioned that some physical therapists are not sufficiently comfortable with the temporomandibular joint. Do you have any brief words of wisdom that you can share with our audience in case some of them aren't comfortable with this region? You know, maybe how can they move forward or develop confidence or let's just say, add the temporomandibular joint into the skill set that they feel comfortable with clinically? Sure. You know, there's, there's simple things you can do like continuing education courses. So I could certainly, if anybody wants to reach out to me, give some advice in terms of maybe some that I would recommend. There's even some simple ones on MedBridge uh, that individuals can utilize if they want to do it virtually. So I think there's space to learn it. The, the opportunities to learn are out there. But I think it doesn't have to be as complicated as maybe what they're thinking. Recognizing that most physical therapists don't leave their general PT education feeling super confident in this area, but it's a joint like any other joint we treat. So some of those principles that we apply in terms of using the patient's severity and irritability to guide our treatment plans, those things coexist. So I think maybe it's a little less intimidating than it needs to be. And applying some of those principles of reasoning that we use in other regions can apply here too. And that certainly feeds into the fact, or, or at least mentioning the fact that the majority of these folks we see do have chronic pain. Um, you know, 86% of my sample had chronic pain with a mean of six years of pain. 
So in the clinic, these are people we see too that typically have chronic pain. So all of those things that the listeners are likely good at already in terms of using their manual skills for the cervical spine, using their skills to manage complex chronic pain, those can apply. So I would argue they already probably have some of the skill sets necessary for this population. And it wouldn't take much to learn a little bit more specifics toward, toward the TMJ. I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm a little bit baffled, although I do know some of the history behind it that we don't necessarily need to go into now. But I'm, I'm a little baffled at how this became one of the quote-unquote other anatomical regions that we somehow just didn't keep in our realm or we didn't sufficiently pay attention to during school or clinical practice. And you know, that troubles me because there are so many people that suffer from pain associated with the jaw and the temporomandibular joint. But again, that's a, that's a long conversation for another day. In terms of wrapping things up here today with you on the podcast, the next thing I'd love to ask you about is whether or not you have any future projects that you're working on. Is there anything that we can expect to see from you, you know, in the forthcoming weeks, months, and years? Yes. Um, Part of this project was also looking at the functional outcome measures. So I kind of briefly mentioned some of the difficulty with this population in terms of functional outcome measures and having a standardized scale that we can all agree on that we use for this population. So uh, we don't have that. And part of this project include looking further into the jaw functional limitation scale and the temporomandibular disability index. So I looked at the reliability and validity of these and even presented that last year at AOMT conference. So the manuscript is in the works, but I have not finished it yet. So that hopefully should be coming soon. And I want to keep digging into that. The functional outcome measures is something I'm interested in. I also have uh, recently finished an unrelated project, but with my colleague Joe Kelly and some of our uh, DPT students at Bradley University, and we created a a self-made algometer for clinical use to look at pressure pain threshold. And this project was actually accepted for a platform, a top five platform at the AOMT conference coming up. So if you want to hear more about that one, uh, look into joining the conference there to look for that. Next is I'm looking into the area of hybrid and accelerated education. So I'm, I'm diving a little bit into educational research, but I'm certainly still keeping tied to my topic of the TMD population too. Well, that all sounds phenomenal. And let me say on behalf of the podcast, the Academy and our audience, it has been spectacular having you on the show. And we, of course, look forward to all those projects in the future. If we are lucky and you have the availability, perhaps we can have you back again sometime in the future. That would be wonderful. I'd love it. And you know what? I need to plug in one more that I forgot. I'm fortunate to be part of the team that's working on the revision for the neck pain CPG too. So that's another huge and exciting thing coming forward. But yes, I'd I'd certainly love to come back. It's been great, Stephen. Thank you. You are very welcome. And uh, I look forward to seeing what all of that generates in the future. So thanks again, and we'll see you sometime soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. 
The views and opinions expressed on the AOPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.